Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. Welcome to this episode of Inspiring Women, and I am so pleased that today we're speaking with Julie Castro Abrams. Now, Julie describes herself as a social justice warrior. She is the creator and founder of How Women Invest. She created and is the CEO and chair of How Women Lead. She's also created organizations like How Women Give. She has, over many years, contributed to advancing justice and the advancement of women through organizations like the Women's Funding Network. She's an advisor to many organizations, including Len Donata, which is a crowdfunding platform in the social sector. Her commitment to justice and community are very well known through many of her endeavors over years. She serves as a leader on boards of organizations that focus on women and children, Latinos, economic development, and the arts. Julie herself is a philanthropist. She has won numerous awards. She comes from education at the University of Chicago and Northwestern. And Julie, I am so pleased to be speaking with you today. Oh, what a what a treat to be here. It sounds like you're talking about somebody else, you know. <laughs> what a gift to be here. Thank you. No, I, it is great to be speaking with you. And, you know, I um, actually was introduced to you because I spoke with a CEO of a company, How Women Invest. Um, you actually, the fund that you raised actually helped to support her company. But Julie, as I get started, you know, I, you know, I've described you as a social justice warrior, as you've talked about that for yourself. Just why don't we get started with what what do you do today? Like, what does your day-to-day look like in terms of all the different organizations that you're involved with? Well, they're all interconnected. Let's start with that. My whole goal right now is to use the leverage of the power influence and frankly wealth that women have. We sort of met this moment in time where, where we are positioned in higher levels of influence, corporations, government, et cetera, right? So leverage that to actually get to some level of equity because the bias that has held us back previously is not fixed. There are cultural problems. And when you look at things like, you know, only 4%, I, I can't remember the number today, but let's say 4% they're, of all- They're terrible. The numbers yeah, are they're terrible. pretty bad. Yeah, Fortune 500 companies are CEOs. And, and up until we started really work, and I'm not taking all the credit, a lot of a lot of leaders started working in the board space. It was like 15, less than 15% of corporate directors were women. So, you know, really working on these numbers that are so, they're just outrageous and they're bad for everybody. Nobody wins when you don't have good governance when you don't have diversity of leadership. Julie, you now you when you talk about yourself as a social justice warrior, let's just like unpack that a little bit. So, so first of all, like where did that come from and how have you been able to sort of maintain that level of energy because the obstacles that you're talking about are fairly significant and they do require energy and commitment to drive change and particularly in the the area of women's advancement and empowerment. I mean, the emotion to the commitment, you know, I I feel it, but yet I 
I know the progress is slow. So where did this come from for you? And you've been doing it for over 20 years. Yeah, maybe more than 30, actually, <laughs> I'm afraid. Um, you know what? I actually grew up in a Catholic family. And honestly, you know, and I went to Catholic school, so I actually believed it. I like, you know, when if you really look at sort, and it, you know, most religions, like this is kind of the foundation. It's a values formation for me, right? Which is you know, be a good Samaritan. Everybody, you know, all the things that that we learned right in Sunday school that really formed who I am. And and I was uh, so frustrated, of course, as I got older and realized other people didn't behave that way. They were hypocrites, if you will. Like people, you know, talked about being good Catholics, um, but then they, you know, all that meant is that they showed up to Sunday mass with fancy clothes on. And to me, that was awful. And so that really was the, that was my foundation. I went to my undergrad at Northwestern was in human development and social policy. And I really got my justice lens on there, took all kinds of courses around racial justice, but also if you, as where I was looking at, like, how do you solve the problems related to poverty? You know, you can't ignore issues around just race justice. And if you, and if you look at why is there housing inequity, why are all these things, you know, you, goes right back to redlining it. And so for me, one of the things I want to be able to do is use uh, my power and influence. And I'm white, you know, I'm, I, my name sounds Latino. People think I am, but I just married a Mexican. Uh, but I, I feel like I have so much power and privilege and I know it. And um, my intent in life is to use my power and privilege to change inequity. And it affects white women, uh, but it also affects people of color much more so as well. So my goal is, is to really be transparent, authentic, and address all these different areas that affect um, everybody's opportunity for advancement. Because if all of us advance, you get rid of these different barriers for economic opportunity, it, the whole economy grows and we're all financially better off. I'm a true believer that we've created an unsustainable economy by having, uh, you know, such huge bifurcation between the, the, the uber wealthy and the people who have nothing. Um, and that's, it's completely unnecessary. Well, Julie, let's just go. First of all, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the awareness that you have of power and privilege as a white woman. So knowing that just in the lens of, you know, women empowerment, and there's a lot of room to grow and advance for women, you still have a level of power and privilege yourself. But you move your organization, your social justice work to the top by both investment funds as well as leadership as the place to start in some of the organizations like How Women Lead that you created. So how did you make that pivot? Why did you go to where you brought your organizations? Why did you start there? What was the important aha moment that said, I have to start at the top, if you will? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, part of it was I had not, I had worked at the, I don't want to say bottom, but I had worked at the grassroots level for many years. So for 11 years, I ran a microenterprise, microfinance organization. We had a, CD, a CDFI. Uh, we were basically helping low-income women start their own companies and then doing uh, microfinance for them in the U.S. And that was super hard. And one of the things I really felt like, you know, in my forties is I was like, you know, I got, I want to do work differently. And there, I saw this opportunity with all these women I knew who were really moving into a lot of uh, power and privilege and, and wealth. And they all had, were doing uh, very diffuse things. Um, but I thought, you know what, if we all get together and work on addressing issues about getting women on boards or addressing issues of getting uh, women founders, that we could change the market. And we are, we've literally got a science around 
working at a multi-level strategy is the most effective. So we work on regulatory and legislation, and then we work on movement building, which is sort of making sure like 10 years ago, people literally thought there were not qualified women to serve on corporate boards. It was very common for people to have this mantra that, well, you can't just have the secretary serve on the board, like as if that was the only person who would would be anywhere qualified, right? We've changed that mantra. That is now old information. So movement building, and then we train women on how to, so that there's plenty of women that are well-qualified, ready to go. And then we do placements. We actually put women on corporate boards. So by working across the whole spectrum, you have more influence because you have market intelligence at every level. And so any roadblocks you can break down in other in your other activities. So we take that scientific approach to working across issues um, in in all the different work that we do. So, uh, and how women invest, for example, again, sort of working on, we want 10,000 women to start investing in venture. We want women to know there's a place for them, that they can play in this in this arena that I think a lot of us think somehow it's very mysterious and it's it's over there, you know? We're working legislative, regulatory, we want a movement build, make sure everybody knows that they can, they're invited. The face of venture is women and women of color and then train women uh, and give them exposure to different opportunities um, in that space of angel and venture investing. We've got classes, we have experiential opportunities, and then we have a venture fund ourselves where you can invest directly in, in one of our funds that allows you to then really influence the market. Well, so, let me let me go into some of those different pockets and we'll stay with, you know, women in, in the boardroom and, you know, just to talk about some of the numbers and, you know, healthcare is my particular area, but in the area of healthcare alone, you know, we have 80% of healthcare decisions being made by women, 70% of the workforce generally, you know, in aggregate, is women um, in healthcare, but in terms of venture funding that's going to healthcare-led companies, only 2.3% is going to women-led or women-founded companies, so completely upside down. Now, if we go into the different areas that you talked about, movement building, regulation changing, and then qualifications, you know, people, women in particular, feeling qualified to have those seats at the table and having the opportunities to have those seats at the table. Maybe let's start with maybe the movements. So in in women, women who lead, how women lead, I understand you create these communities specific to, you know, not all women are the same. So you make, how, how do you create movements and micro communities for women to feel capable and have others who like them are trying to move in a certain direction? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So people will generally start with us and go through our board readiness training, and that's a generalist frame, but they'll have, we'll have 15 different corporate directors speak, and they learn everything you need to know to get ready to just how to network, what you know, value proposition, the legal risks, et cetera, right? Uh, how to protect yourself. Um, and then we actually connect people in what, what the goal is, is to demystify the process and make it really relatable. So like you said, creating micro communities and we call them affinities. And so we'll have affinity groups based on your career track. So a lot of women who are in the HR, chief human resource officers, think that no CHROs ever get on boards. Well, that's not true. So what we do is we connect women who want to go on boards that have that background with women who are already on boards that have their background. And they can say, this is how I 
how I leveraged that expertise. Here's how I made sure I augmented it. Here are the, you know, the different trends and why people need CHROs on boards these days. So we literally do it by sort of your career track for general counsels and CFOs and CTOs. Um, but then we also do based on some industries. So healthcare is one of them. Uh, we know that the leadership in healthcare is primarily male. I think my friend, Tony Breyer, became the CEO of Sutter Health a couple of years ago. And she said that only 4% of all healthcare systems were run by women at that time. Like it was a big deal that she had that role. So there, you know, how do you actually then get on healthcare boards if there's not a lot of women moving into the C-suite? And then, and, and so we demystified. And then we also do it around race uh, and other identities. So black, Latino, Asian, Middle Eastern, LGBTQ plus folks. So, so really trying to just give people a safe place, just, you know, to address any of those stories that we were hanging on to about why why it's hard for me particularly. Having the communities and that gives others confidence. So I think those are terrific. But as you also said, that alone is not enough. So maybe let's talk about some of the regulatory and structural things that are changing and um, you know how you have a hand in that. So we certainly know that California has made um, some absolute rules in terms of companies that are there need to, that if they're public companies, they need to have uh, directors who are women or people of color. We know that NASDAQ is making big moves in terms of their CEO, Adina Friedman, who is the first stock exchange to start to require directors to be not just all men to be listed on the stock exchange. So first of all, how did those things come about? Who's following suit? What else needs to happen there? So Senator Hannah Beth Jackson in California, she actually has turned off, but she was responsible for a lot of really important legislation for women, including equal pay, et cetera. She partnered with NABO in LA, actually, the National Association of Women Business Owners, to initially draft the Senate Bill 826 that passed in California. And then a lot of us kind of got on board and got letters, et cetera, to really push that legislation through. So it was really, it was really her vision and leadership that made that happen. It is now being replicated in six other states. And this is the one requiring you have, depending on the size of your board, two to three board members that are women. But following suit, I think just like a year later is AB 979, which requires public companies to have people of color and LGBTQ representation on their board. Uh, so California, and I don't know that other states have replicated that legislation yet, but California clearly has been leading. And this is the thing, recalls happen three times faster when you have diversity on your board. It's life and death. This is not just, it is dangerous, not just for shareholders, but for anybody, you know, interfacing with a company to have group think, to have one type of person on a board. It's so unacceptable in this day and age. You mentioned a couple different um, actors, including NASDAQ, which has been a fantastic uh, move this year. But the first ones to the party were really the asset management firms. And they're not known as being progressive at all. What they did is they looked at the data to see that it was dangerous for their investments to have, you know, groupthink on boards. And so you saw BlackRock and State Street and CalPERS and CalSTRS. They were the first ones requiring diversity. And if you track the, the sort of annual letters that come out from the chairman or the CEO of those 
firms, you actually can tell the trends. So um, in the last couple of years, you, you will see that we've had statements come out about requiring cybersecurity expertise on a board. So all of a sudden, these chief technology officers, these cybersecurity experts were super hot commodity for board roles. And if you, because if you don't have that person on the board, they require you have a very extensive plan, right? So moves like that, or State Street came out a year and a half ago say, with a letter saying, culture trumps physical assets in corporate value. And so, and as much as sometimes it's as much as 94% of corporate value. So if it's that important, it is therefore imperative that a board has experts in how you build and evaluate and maintain uh, positive cultures on boards. So you don't have other, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, talk about Travis Kalanick and Uber is a good example of a board not being on top of their CEO and culture behavior. Um, we also see things like um, there was a shareholder lawsuit against uh, Tesla because Elon Musk was making outrageous pay and they felt like it was not good for the, the shareholder value. So more and more, you know, there's more transparency, there's more activism. A lot of it is driven by the asset management firms and some legislation, uh, but also, you know, just community activism and leadership is more and more moving the needle on what corporate boards are supposed to, how they have to function and focus. Okay, so you're talking about, you know, at the board level, diversity of the board really reducing risk, which is something that boards really do want to do for um, organizations. There's also data about higher performance, financial performance for companies with greater diversity in um, the board. And so even with these regulations, though, we also know just through some recent research that we still have about 40 years to go, a long time before we start to see board parity. So maybe let's move this to the third part of what you're talking about in terms of things that you work on in how women invest and how women lead, which is the getting the skills for the women to go after those board positions, to put their, you know, hat in the ring. And we also know that women just tend to have a, uh, they need a high degree of like fit before they're willing to apply for something. So how do women build their skills? How do more women get into those positions where they can be either pursuing or getting onto boards? What do you do there? We help people with their confidence, self-efficacy. We get them going fast. We connect them to board opportunities. It, you have to be qualified as a potential board director before you even get to us, right? Um, and so to me, it's it's about owning women moving up the career ladder inside of companies, getting PL responsibility and and just earlier on in your career, mapping it out so you know that you're getting the right kind of experiences. So when it's your turn, you're ready to go. Our work just helps women sort of, uh, and a lot of people will say, well, men don't go to classes like the board readiness session that you guys offer. And it's like, that's, that's true. Women always, frankly, really care about doing a great job. So they're always seeking uh, sort of education and training ahead of time. And, and that's generally why women, frankly, do a better job uh, and are known as being much more disciplined and careful board directors. So, you know, it takes all kinds, nothing wrong with being a man, obviously, but, um, you know, women at this stage, we all, because the bar is so high for us, we prepare much more. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is the vast majority of the board seats are private company board seats. You can't legislate those. 
we, we've been talking about public company legislation, et cetera. That's hundreds of boards or rather a couple thousand. But in terms of private companies, you've got hundreds of thousands of private companies. And who gets those first board seats? The venture capitalists uh, take those first board seats in any of those companies that are high growth companies. So women have got to start playing in venture. And when I say that, I mean, as investors, as, as well as you know, professional people working in that space, 2% of all venture dollars go to women founders. Let's just let that sit in 2%. There's something very broken and very wrong. Uh, when that is the case. And so we created a venture firm to focus specifically on addressing that issue. Um, and we take a board seat in every company that we invest in. So our intention is to create a pathway. And the first board seat I ever got, I invested $25,000 in a company and I asked them for a board seat. It was very early days. They said, yes, they say you may, got, you may get kicked off when the real venture capitalists come in. I was like, that's fine. Uh, and so far they haven't kicked me off. So it, that's a space for all of us to start playing. So in terms of doing that, Julie, you know, as you think about that, uh, you know, for the hundreds of thousands of private companies where the board seats are not necessarily known, largely held by men, not, um, you know, not nearly enough women founders and CEOs for the women who should be exploring it, like, you know, when should people start thinking about that? Again, women on a career trajectory, what advice do you give people? Because you're clearly an advocate um, and you've, you've got the tools and programs to help people build the skills, but when should they start thinking about it? You know, you can start thinking about it very early on. I need, like, I, there is no reason not to start thinking about it. I have a 28 year old daughter and I'm already talking to her about it. You know, it, she needs to start going on nonprofit boards by the time she's 28. That's how you start to learn how to govern. Uh, it's not a, it's not a qualifier, but it is great training ground. It's also how you build your, your networks. And you know, 85% of all board seats are word of mouth network uh, engagements. Uh, very few use professional search firms. Uh, so building your networks early, uh, building your experience as a governor, it's very hard to shift from being an operator to a governor. Let me tell you, I was a terrible board member, very intrusive in early the early days before I really learned what it meant to govern because I was an operator, I am. And I would, you know, I would be like, oh, well, let's just give it to me and I'll take care of it. <laughs> like, no, that's not your job. You're on the board. So all those kinds of things just scaffold throughout your life. The other thing is certainly, you know, the leadership roles that you have. I know a number of women who are sort of moving up, let's say, in diversity and inclusion in corporations. You, know, you got to make sure at some point you complement that with uh, you know profit and loss require responsibility. Those are the kinds of things you want to be thinking about as you scaffold your career. That is terrific. You know, Julie, I could just go on and on. I've really appreciated this sort of, you know, depth perspective on boards and women who might be wanting to pursue. And I also love that, you know, your advice is, you know, start early um, because there's, there's a lot of room to grow in that capacity. As we close out on this inspiring women conversation, conversation, any last advice you might give younger listeners, perhaps, who are in the earlier stages of their career journeys? You know, I think a lot of us have this sense that somebody else knows more than we do. 
Like I have to actually get like, literally, I know somebody who's trying to, who's going to start her own company. She's like, oh, I better go get an MBA. It's like, you don't need that in it. Furthermore, it's not this big mystery. You want to, you want to start investing in venture. I promise you it is not that big of a leap to, to get there, depending on what your experience is. Um, so, so if you feel this sense of uh, what do we call that imposter syndrome, I really want you to challenge that. My guess is in most cases, you are going to be just as good or better than anybody else who's already in that room. So raise your hand, ask for an opportunity. Don't think some, you know, don't let go of that thing thinking that somebody else knows, or you have to be invited in, raise your hand and and ask for a seat at the table. The other thing is in our, I created a credo in our organization. Our culture isn't great for women or how women are with each other. So I invite women to be fierce advocates for each other. And if you get that inkling to talk about people behind their back or to do that mean girl thing, shut it off. Shut it off when other people do it around you. Just really pivot and say, let's be advocates for each other. The other thing is men are better at making introductions than women are, and it hurts us. Women are too protectionist with our contacts. We've got to be opening up our our, our old, as we used to call them, Rolodexes, um, and make sure that we give other women access and opportunity. And then finally, I just invite you to be unabashedly visible. Stand up, be visible. My daughter watches to see, get cues from you and how you lead. Uh, And we need you to be powerful, uh, dynamic leaders. Well, Julie, I think that it's a whole lot of advice that you yourself lead by example, and I appreciate it. I can see why you describe yourself as a social justice warrior. You've got the passion um, for all of it. So thank you for this inspiring women conversation. We have been speaking with Julie Castro Abrams and Julie, thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you today. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.